Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast from the Mary Foundation. Today's episode features Ed Joza. Ed is a former pilot who flew for both commercial airlines as well as FedEx. A few years ago, he was in a head-on collision that, according to every doctor he met, should have killed him. During and after the accident, Ed experienced a profound mystical vision of a place he could only describe as forever, along with a pit of vile creatures and a timeless experience with the Holy Spirit. Ed's story sounds unbelievable, and he spent nearly a year trying everything he could to prove his visions weren't real, but nothing of this world could explain what happened. Get ready for an amazing journey into life, death, suffering, and the amazing power of God. But first, if you've been looking for a way to grow closer to Jesus, we found a great opportunity for you. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Scherschlicht is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. It is the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app by searching Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosarymeditations.com. If you want to learn more about Catholicism, or are looking for materials to evangelize family, friends, and fellow parishioners, please visit the Mary Foundation at catholiccity.com to order our Catholic scapulars, books, booklets, medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's Catholic City message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, catholiccity.com. We're here with Ed Joza and Anthony Mancini from the Mary Foundation and CatholicYoungAdultGroups.org. So yeah. why don't you just start out? Okay. Well, hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I appreciate it. Uh, and as I look at this as such a great opportunity to, you know, get the Lord's message out. So uh, I uh, I was in a car accident in 2017, and it was it was one of those accidents that uh, when you look at it afterwards, uh, it was insurvivable. Uh, and, I, you know, I've had a lot of doctors uh, tell me, you know, that they were perplexed with, you know, how it is that I survived. Uh, you know, I've, and, and the other miraculous thing, especially when you look at the at the scene, at the accident scene, at the pictures, there were there were, I think, nine people in all told that were involved in this three car accident. Uh, and all of the cars were just absolutely just mangled and uh, I was the only one that walked away with any type of serious injury my mm. my uh, my son and, a, and a, another young boy uh, did break break their collarbones from the seat belts and my my daughter had some uh, minor injury to her ear and that was it and and uh, that in itself was miraculous and it's, it really is a story of miracles um, and uh, you know the big takeaway on that is that you know when I got up that morning when I was driving down the road if you would have asked me if if i was going to heaven i would tell you of course i was um but you know i i looked at myself by the world standards by the world standards i was a pretty good guy i was i was living a good life i had uh, lots of friends i had uh, uh I, I was i was making an incredible living i you know my my kids were successful. I was successful. My wife and I, we, and I looked at myself, you know, I wasn't a bad guy. I wasn't killing people. I wasn't, I wasn't stealing things. I, I, 
I went to mass most of the time, you know, and I, and I say this now with, you have to understand, with, with absolute embarrassment. Um, you know, I went to mass unless something more important came up. And, and I, lo- I look now at that and I think, I shudder to even think that's how I, that's how I, I lived my life. But I, w- I would come to find out um, that I, I really was not, uh, I was really not on my way to heaven. You know, God does not command us to live by the world's standards. He, he asks us to live by his. And that was what I was not doing. I was focused on the wrong things. I didn't focus on the right things. So driving down the road, uh, we get hit head on uh, by, a, by a, a second car. The first car rear-ended the, the car that we were passing and drove them into our lane as we passed by. Uh, and man, it was, just, it was just violent. It was, it was the most violent impact I, I could have and, and I instantly went blind. Um, couldn't see a thing except it was all white. And the car bucked and, and spun and, and it finally came to a stop and, and my, my sight came back as the airbag deflated. And, and I remember thinking, uh, uh, well, a couple of things. One, I, it was so sensational that I, it, that I thought it had to be a dream. And then I realized that I couldn't breathe. And then I realized the pain was like nothing I could experience. And I kept telling myself this was a dream. And at any moment, I should be waking up now because this really hurts and I can't breathe. And then it finally dawned on me as the airbag came down and I saw the across the road uh, that smashed up other car and I could see my mangled car. I realized that, okay, this wasn't a dream. This, this mm-hmm. was real. And, you know, it, it, one of the things that I noticed right off the bat was that everything seemed hazy. And I don't mean just at that moment, because that moment looked no different than the other 46 years of my life that I lived prior to that. It all seemed hazy. It all seemed fake. None of it seemed real. And I felt like I was stuck somewhere else. And I, you know, I wouldn't come to understand what that was until much later. But, you know, the, back to the injuries, I... I immediately looked over and I, I realized I was pinned and I could just move my head a little bit and I looked at uh, my daughter who had just gotten, gotten out of the car and she was dialing on her phone and I thought, okay, good, she's she's calling for help and she's obviously okay. And I tried to look into the back seat where my son was, uh, my, my second uh, son, and uh, and I, I, I couldn't turn. And as I was looking back, I could see him walk by my daughter. So now I knew that my two kids... Uh, two of my the three kids that I have, my two were with me that were okay, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know we'd come to find out I'd, I'd end up being trapped in that car for two and a half hours. You know, and they, uh, the first team that arrived uh, didn't have the jaws of life. Now we live out in the country in Indiana, and so our you know we don't have the big metropolis like uh, rescue units, and so the first unit that got there had very minimal stuff and. Uh, it took about 20 minutes for the second unit to get there, and they started working and cutting me free. And um, Can I pause you here and ask, because I saw yeah. the, the picture in your book of the accident. Can you just describe what we're looking at with that car? Because you might hear pinned and think, like, you know, the steering wheel bent and it's got your leg trapped. Like, Yeah, so, um, so the car that hit me, that was driven into me, uh, again, that the car that 
the, the car that caused the accident uh, had, a, had a person in it that was high on marijuana, uh, impacted the car in front of her going 55 miles an hour with her foot on the gas. And that, that car pushed the other car, the other SUV, into us. And so hit us head on uh, on the driver's side. And um, so the, the car collapsed basically around me. Uh, the, the driver's side door was bowed out from the impact of my body, and it was bowed almost in half and probably was sticking out. It looked like it was open, but it was still sort of stuck in, in its latches. Um, I was pinned into the pillar that separates the front and back doors, uh, and the the dash had actually pushed into my – the steering wheel was so deep into me that I couldn't see it anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. The center console caved around, and it pushed on my right side, and um, then – where the, the engine was driven back to where your feet are, and, and, and basically uh, both of my legs were were put into a space that was probably big enough for one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the brake pedals, uh, the brake pedal uh, was was um, driven up, and, and, and the, the tops of my feet were pinned against my shins. So if you can imagine... Uh, what that is and so um mm. so it was pretty bad it, it, and you know like everything was exposed that the 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 metal of the body just kind of peeled back like a banana peel and on both vehicles there's just you can just see like they're, they're peeled open there's nothing but bent frame and engine and you know uh, so it was pretty pretty catastrophic bad enough that uh later my brother-in-law would would go to the uh to the wrecking yard and try to reclaim some of the items in the car and and the guy that owned the yard had, you know, done it his whole life, mm-hmm. offered his condolences. And, uh, and my brother-in-law says, oh, he didn't die. And, you know, the, 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 the wrecking yard owner says, oh, that's impossible. I've mm-hmm. done this my whole life. You, you don't survive that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's – imagine as bad as you can imagine it. Um, it, it was pretty bad. Um, and so – uh, once they did get me free, they had to end up, they cut away as much as they could. And then again, my, my legs were still pinned. Um, and they, uh, they basically came in and told me they were going to sedate me. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the thing about it is, is for two and a half hours, I, I, I was back and forth between the pain of a level that I didn't, I didn't know existed. And the fact that I really felt like I was suffocating, like every Every moment, every breath was, it just wasn't enough. It was just, and it was sort of a, a panic of, it was like drowning for two and a half hours. It was, um, it was pretty torturous. Uh, so they ended up sedating me and uh, taking me to life flight. And again, you know, again, I tell you, this is a story of miracles. And I think about, they took me to the hospital where they take the Indy 500 with racetrack crash people. And so they mm-hmm. have teams there that have done that kind of repair work. And and I think about that, like maybe nowhere else in the country would have been set up to deal with what they were getting. And, and that's where I went. And, and I think about just the way the Lord, how our, our lives are, everything in them is, is weaved by him. And, and, placed by him and, and we don't even see it we don't even notice we don't even take we take it all for granted and you know every moment of every day is a miracle of the lord working in our life and it's just things you don't see it, it 
that I see now. And I look at it and say, geez, you know, there's so many things that I don't believe in coincidences. I once did, but I don't now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the coincidence, coincidence is just something that a non-believer calls uh, what we call a miracle. Um, so anyways, they, they life flight me down uh, to the hospital and really didn't, you know, no one knew how bad I was. Um, and so uh, two and a half hours stuck in the car, an hour in, a, in an ambulance uh, while they were kind of getting me stabilized and working out some legal issues. Um, there was a problem with me being sedated and then being flown. And mm-hmm. so that was all being battled out while, uh, while I was in, un, un, unbeknownst to me or even my wife, uh, I was in that ambulance waiting. Uh, then they got me into the hospital and they, you know, started doing all the scans and the, to determine where to start. And mm-hmm. so what they found was, and I'm going I'm, I'm to list my injuries because at, at some point, I've already talked about that I was in pain, but at some point I'm going to talk about pain again. It, before you do that, yeah. I just, how was the passage of time from your perspective so you say you know two hours in the car and then one hour in the ambulance yeah so did that feel longer or shorter yeah i mean it it probably felt longer because there was the entire time not only was there an unrelenting pain but there was the fear of suffocation I mean, to know you're suffocating, like to not be able to breathe. I mean, you know, somebody puts a bag over your head. It doesn't take very long for panic to start setting in, right? Only there was nothing I could do. I was trapped and I couldn't breathe and they couldn't help me. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it it seemed like a long time. I mean, it wasn't... um, Time really didn't mean anything because I was in I was in an I was sort of in a situation that time was the least of my worries. I was worrying uh, I was worrying second by second, and that's all the further I could think of, and that's all the further I'd be able to think for the first I don't know, eight or nine days. I literally lived second by second, thinking I can make it one more second, and so. Time was, time was ir- irrelevant, and, it, and there might be reason for that, too, that we'll get to in a little bit. But uh, So when they did get me to the hospital, they did all the scans, uh, they found the thing. Uh, they found uh, that my rupture had been, spl- had been uh, uh, just absolutely disintegrated. Uh, and it was uh, a level four uh, injury, which is apparently the worst it can be. Sorry, what was, what was ruptured? My yeah. spleen. Okay, ruptured spleen. Uh, ruptured spleen. Um, and it was the the worst it could be. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, a miracle. Uh, that injury has about a 20-minute lifespan. If you have that injury, you have about 20 minutes to get to the hospital. At a point, by the time they operated on me on that operation, I had it had been over five hours. So, um, again, when the doctors looked at it, uh, again, they, they were perplexed and told my wife that they have no, when they opened me up and saw, it was an impossibility that I was still alive. Um, and then it, a lot of my organs, a lot of my organs were, were, were lacerated and bruised. Um, and uh, so I, I had several uh, compound fractures in arms and legs and, and, and the bones that had protruded had all been sheared off by the, by the impact. Uh, it, 
uh, eight broken ribs, 10 fractured vertebrae, six herniated discs, two collapsed lungs, which would explain the not only that the, the steering wheel was buried in my chest, but my lungs were also uh, collapsed. Uh, that's another, uh, you, you can live with two collapsed lungs, but it's, it's not likely, and especially not for as long as I went without any uh, intub- you, intubation. Do you have any idea what the quote-unquote for even any of these individual injuries, normal recovery is because I just saw you walk in, in here. Yeah, you walked like a normal guy. You don't. You're not like grimacing or limping. You don't look like your whole body was mangled to pieces. Yeah. So um, in April, I had my 23rd operation since the wreck. Um, so the doctors have done quite a bit, but um, you know, at at the end uh, of the story, I usually tell it, but we'll tell it now. Is that um, they they. They first told my wife they didn't think I would live. Mm-hmm. And then they told her that I wouldn't walk and I definitely wouldn't fly again. And they told me I would suffer great depression, that I would become addicted to drugs. They, they told her all these awful things that were going to happen. But um, they didn't take into account what God can do. Mm-hmm. So that was what could be. Um, uh, and, and I do... <laughs> I was glad you didn't see me getting the books out of the car because <laughs> it is somewhat embarrassing to try to do certain things. And so, um, again, I'm a walking miracle. And mm-hmm. uh, the fact that I'm walking, the fact I think about it every time when I was walking in with the books, I thought about, I can't believe I'm walking. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Uh, it, Not only that, it looks like you work out, too. I haven't touched a weight since uh, before the wreck, the day of the wreck. Um, And that is, again, one of those things. It's another God story, so let's tell it. Uh, When I was 14 years old, I played football. I grew Mm -hmm. up in western Pennsylvania, so I know where you guys are located, so don't take that against me. Hmm. Um, But uh, we were required to lift weights. And at Mm -hmm. 14, I started lifting weights, and I, I really did fall in love with it. But the really interesting thing, again, back to how God works in our life, Every moment of every day. When I was 14, there was a voice that told me I needed to train to to battle an unseen enemy. And so from 14 to 46, I trained. And I I lifted really heavy weight. Mm -hmm. I was one of those guys that, you know, if you ask me to... (laughs) If I had to do anything more than five times, I couldn't do it. But I could lift the car up five times. Uh, I, I lifted with super heavy weight, low rep, heavy weight. And I don't know why. That's what I was driven to do. And something the doctors explained to me was that um, my muscle mass grew so thick and so dense that it forced my bones to grow stronger. Mm-hmm. Because if you have that really big, heavy muscle that's you you can literally snap your own bones. And so the body knows that and it builds your bones stronger. So mm-hmm. I literally was built like a tank after working out like that for 30 some years. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, what you see is the residual of that. I, I promise if you poked me, it wouldn't look as, <laughs> it wouldn't look like, or it wouldn't feel like it looks. But um, So how, how long ago again was the accident? Six years, a little over six okay, years. Okay, give, I mean... Anthony and I are sitting here across the table from Ed, and like it, looking at him, it looks like he's a guy who works out three or four times a week with weight training, and yeah. that's after six years of not lifting a weight. Yeah. That's not 
typical. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get that a lot. I get that a lot from doctors, and I get a lot of people assume that I still work out, and then and so that's another you know misconception that they think, well, he must be okay because he, he still works out pretty hard. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know why I still look the way I look. Um, but good genes, maybe, maybe. Um, but you know, maybe, you know, maybe when you're touched by God, it it it, it really does physically change you. And, Perhaps. And so um, it's reasonable. All right, so take us take us back now. We've gone through your injuries and sort of the, the definitely miraculous as far as as much as our technology can tell us this shouldn't be possible. Right. We're back in the hospital. They've done the scans. You're starting to go under surgeries and whatnot. Yeah. So, you know, that all happened without me knowing it. I, I was sedated when they pulled me out, and I never regained consciousness until I was on the operating table. And I don't know which operation I was mm-hmm. doing. So they operated on me. Um, the first operation, I believe my wife said I went in after midnight and they were still operating on me in the afternoon. Um, and they did a lot of, they had multiple operations going on at the same time. They, they were working on this. Well, the spleen they did uh, uh, by itself. And then they brought an entire team in to stabilize all the bones that were, were smashed apart. And so they literally worked on uh, my left arm, my left hip, which was was shattered, and uh, they, my right leg. And they did all of that at the same time. Um, at one point, I woke up. I remember waking up on the operating room table. and uh, You know, the doctor was looking down at me. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, it would have been easier to choose death. And that, and then that immediately grabbed my attention and I thought, wait a minute, did I have a choice? And then uh, as soon as the doctor saw me look up, I saw him turn to the side and, and speak to another doctor. And I'm sure he was talking to the anesthesiologist telling him to put me back to sleep. And mm-hmm. um, But in that quick, brief moment, there was the idea that I chose something. I chose this. And I, I, again, I wouldn't come to understand what that meant until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up having uh, seven operations in the first seven days. Uh, and, and the pain was just unbelievable. The lungs were collapsed. And I'm not sure why, but they, you know, they, they put me on a breathing machine, uh, a respirator, and uh, I, or a ventilator, I guess it's called. Uh, usually they sedate you when you're on mm-hmm. a ventilator, but for some reason they kept me awake. And that was a whole nother level of torture where, where it felt torturous before to suffocate. Having that tube down my throat was like, it was like more than I could bear on top of all the pain, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, all I remember thinking is I would ask them every, every time when, when's the next operation? I couldn't talk. They, they left the, my, the damage that was in my right arm. They left that alone with the idea they would fix it later because with me being uh, intubated, I needed to be able to communicate. And so they had a a paper keyboard, like a Mm -hmm. typewriter keyboard, but it was paper. And I would type out my, when I would speak, I would have to type out what I wanted to say. And so they left that arm. And, and, you know, I, I just kept asking by typing, when's the next operation? When's the next operation? Because I knew the pain would stop. When they put me to sleep, I wouldn't know about it. And so I would look at the clock and I would live second by second until the next operation. And, and you know, you talked about time. 
in the, the, the there was a clock on the wall that I could look out and you know, I was on my back and it was over my feet you know I could look up and, and see it in the span that it would take that second hand to go one second my thought would be I can make it one second I can make it one more second I can make it one more second and that's what I did for like eight days so it was really strange I mean I look at it now and I think I my thought, my thought took longer than a second to to think my thought, and I and I did it second after second. So, time was kind of all dorky for me. Um, but uh, you know, it, 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 I was in the ICU, and you know, one of one of the things that uh, we didn't talk about was that the impact almost threw me out of the car. Now, I, you know, again, I went out. I went backwards and I went sideways out the side of the car, which was, you know, my body bowed the, the, the door out on the driver's side. But that impact and that force on the back seat ripped all the skin off of my back, which no one knew. I, I didn't know either. I just knew that when they, they had traction on my hip because it, it not only did it shatter the hip, but the femur was driven through the back side of it. So they had to use traction to hold that in place. Is that where they like? have force on it on purpose is that what traction means? yeah so traction is like so they drilled they drilled brackets into my shins and they hooked up weights that would on on a pulley at the end of the bed that would pull my my leg out of my hip mm-hmm. uh and then of course it was pretty heavy weight so it would pull me down and so then every you know again i've got all these broken ribs and broken vertebrae and broken arms and legs and so does the hip. bone want to go back where it was so it's not necessarily the bone. It's the fact that it, so that that leg was driven through the backside of me, right. and then I was stuck for two and a half hours. And so, not only did those ligaments and tendons go in the wrong direction, but then they sort of froze with it in the wrong place. Right. And and through the trauma, they stayed there. So the traction is to pull that back out, so that the yeah. and so that the hip can start to heal. Because otherwise the bones pushing the bones out of place because they were shattered. Mm-hmm. So um, so they would have to pull me up. About every hour they would pull me up. And, of course, it hurt everywhere. And I would scream. But it would also, what nobody knew. And, again, I, I couldn't really talk because I, did, I had the tubes in. It, it would rip my skin. And, they, you know, and that, it was just excruciating, you know. Um, and every hour they'd do it. And I would, I would scream out. And it's just it was humiliating uh so much so much humiliation and all of that when you're in that situation you know and um especially you know i was i say big strong macho man but as you know i'm shorter than the average guy but i was thicker than the average guy too so there Mm -hmm. and you go from being a big strong muscle man i felt like i was superman and then i and I realized that, okay, this is what Superman must have felt like when he first experienced kryptonite, right? You know, and that was me. I was I was weak and frail and broken and something that I'd never been in my whole life. Um, so, you know, the, the, the thing about it is that it wasn't just physical pain, but there was, there was an emotional pain uh, to be a victim like that and to look at your loved ones looking at you like that fear. You know, that hurt, uh, that hurt as much as the physical pain, because like, look at that fear on my wife, her brother, my brother, my friend, 
that, that stayed with me 24-7, you know. And, and it was so bad that the doctors who didn't even know me, right, these doctors and nurses don't know me, but when they would walk in the room, you could see the fear on their face. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the funny thing is, is, and I haven't mentioned this before, when I was trapped in the car, when I was in the hospital, when, when everybody didn't know if I was going to live, I knew that I was going to live. I knew I did. And and that was not a macho thing. And, and that, again, later uh, we'll explain where that came from. But I knew I was going to live because of an experience that I had that I didn't remember at the time, an experience with the Lord. And, and so... Yeah, there there was there were levels of pain that, like I said, even a, emotional pain that that were, were really rough. So after the first seven days, um, we I go into the step down unit. Now, now, granted, you have to understand the doctors. The first few days, told my wife that I would be in that hospital for months, mm-hmm. and then I would be in rehab for even more months, and and so that's where we were. That's where we were starting from. That was our reality. So after seven days, I go to a step-down unit. And, you know, at that point, we know, seven days, I'm going to live. All mm-hmm. the life-threatening things are over. And it's just a matter now of me healing. And uh, so I, I told everybody to go home. And in, in reality, I was just, I was so miserable. So I was so saturated with pain that, any other external stimuli was was too much to bear. Uh, and what I mean by that is like when somebody would walk in the room, that's a stimulus. Mm-hmm. Your eyes see it, your ears hear it, and it was more than I could take. It was like that final drop that makes the dam break. And so at this point, I'm miserable and I, I, just, I just needed to be in the room quiet and alone. And, and so um, I told everybody, go home, spend the... Everybody go home. Get some rest tonight. I'm fine. Well, I'm in a step-down unit. Nothing can happen. Mm-hmm. And I sent everybody home. And and, um, and I remember a nurse came in. And that was one of the things, once I got out of the ICU, everybody would always say, do you want the TV on? <laughs> and I'd say, no. I had no interest to watch TV. Uh, I had no interest in doing anything that I used to do. Um and I knew that if I turned the TV on, it'd just be more stimulus and it would just be more pain. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say no. And that nurse left. And as soon as she left, I looked at the wall. Now, I mean, the wall wasn't much further away than it is in this. I mean, maybe eight feet in front of where I'm laying. And below the TV, it was a center block wall. There was a a small bright spot and about the size of like a credit card. And it was brilliantly bright like you know like when somebody has their cell phone flashlight set too bright when they take the picture and you're like oh my gosh that's horrible that's how bright it was but it was about the size of a credit card and as i looked at it i thinking what is this i felt myself just fly through it and then i was just surrounded in this brilliant white and, and it was like a tunnel and there was a little bit of darkness at the end like like the end of the tunnel is it was a backwards tunnel normally there's light at the end mm. of the tunnel and we're dark but i'm in the light and there's a little bit of dark at the end and that dark comes up and envelops me and i realize i'm looking down i'm in a room and i'm looking down on a scene that i remember 
I, at that moment, I had not remembered it, but at that moment I remembered and I thought, oh my goodness, I remember this. And as soon as I made that conscious thought, I no longer was remembering it, but I was living it like it was the first time. It was mm -hmm. brand new to me. And, and I was in a room. I, I could see 360 degrees around me, uh, everywhere, below me, but I could not see my body. You could, were you looking around or could you just see it all? No, I had to look. Mm -hmm. I had to look. And it, it kind of, it, it reminds me of like being on a, 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 gyro, a gyro gimbal, like that can go in any direction. Like it didn't matter where I looked, I could see, but I had to look. Consciously? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't just see it all. I had to look at everything. And I looked all around. And the first thing I realized was that I had exited time. And so it, I, I don't even, I can't even um, explain what that is, but I knew the time no longer existed. And, and what that means is for time not to exist. For example, we're in this room here and the door is shut. If somebody were to throw that door open, we would be startled. And, and then we would look and see, okay, it's a friend. And we would, as time mm -hmm. passed, the fight or flight is going to kick in and we are going to resolve it. It will resolve with time, one way or another. Mm -hmm. To live timelessly is you're living in that startle forever. It never diminishes. It never changes. And it stays like that forever. That's really hard concept to understand, but it, if it's good, it can be really good. But if it's bad, it's really bad. And so I was timeless. I knew that. I was in a timeless place. I had crystal clear vision. And when I say crystal clear, I mean like it was so fine, so detailed, so sharp, so bright that it was almost painful. And I also had tremendous knowledge and I'm going to call it the knowledge of the world. If, if it is known in this world, then I knew it. And then I was conscious that there was someone there. And I, I looked and, and the funny thing is, is in my mind, I can remember seeing this entity and I could not describe to you what he looked like, except that his back was to me. And at that moment, I realized that I was alone. So this is kind of a strange thing. He's there, but I'm alone. And, and I'm going to tell you what that means. Mm -hmm. I realized that my whole life, and there are certain things that through that knowledge or through, through knowledge, through truth, that... I know that they don't just apply to me, they apply to all of us. And so I had realized that God holds our soul in the palm of his hand and he holds it in a very particular way. He holds it like we would hold a, a softball. And, and he protects our soul from the back and the sides. Everywhere where his grip is, evil cannot harm us. And the only way that evil can enter into our soul is through the front we have to be aware of it and we have to let it in. And I understood that. And, and what I felt now was that I felt the absence of his grip. The Lord had let go of my soul. 
He was no longer with me. He was no longer holding me. And I can tell you, you see, I have goosebumps, goosebumps thinking about it. Mm -hmm. It was horrifying. And to tell you that it was horrifying, I'm going to tell you stories of the other world repeatedly. And no matter what I tell you, the words do not describe it. We cannot describe what it is like. The human language is not capable. So horrifying is the worst, that's the worst word I can come up with, right? It's the worst thing I can think of, horrifying. And it, that, does, that doesn't scratch the surface of what it was to feel God's absence. So being the slightly catechized Catholic that I was prior to this, just very poorly catechized, I'd always heard that hell was the absence of God. And I had known that I knew that God had left me. So I asked the entity who I knew would tell me the truth. And I don't know how I knew that. I just knew that he would tell me the truth. And I said, am I in hell? And he said, no. So then with the little knowledge that I did have, I think what's the next step? Am I in purgatory? Mm -hmm. And with just a, a very slight, it was like a chuckle like you would give to a, a toddler that is struggling to understand but can't. He kind of chuckles and says, no, this is forever. And I said, well, how do I get out? And he said, that is up to you. And I said, what do I do to get out? And he said, that is up to you. And then he was gone. And now I, I was alone and I could, I could look at my surroundings for the, really look at them for the first time. And it was a, it was a small red cylindrical room, maybe eight or nine feet in diameter. And it was, it, the walls were made out of nothing but doors of all different sizes. And all the handles were flush. And not that I had hands that I could reach out and grab them, but I knew that I couldn't open them. I knew I couldn't get out. Mm -hmm. And Again, it was the highest gloss red. I mean, it just hurt your eyes to look at it. And then the ceiling was like that, like your light here, that that white translucent. And in it was, was this blood-like, it looked like blood. It was a thick red viscous liquid that, that just slowly moved around. And once I looked at it, I could not look away again. And to look at it, was horrifying. It caused a burning in my soul, which I now knew resided like right here in my chest, right? And the burning went like a million miles deep. Like my soul was so much bigger than I ever could have possibly comprehended. And that burning, it was like an ancient burning, and but, but I recognized it. There was something about it I recognized, and it was not from my earthly life. Something from maybe when we, when we when we're in the mind of God and and he creates us right it it's mm -hmm. ancient and and I knew it and I could not look away from it and that sheer terror of being without God it just it didn't subside it didn't end and so I had this knowledge I had this truth that I knew I knew that I was there because of the actions in my life I knew there was no do-overs. You can't mm -hmm. go and do it again. This is it. This is forever. That this would never change. It would never end. It would never lessen. And I was there because I deserved it. And it was a just place to be for me. And I was in misery. And I, I even thought, 
reminded me of when God presented himself to Moses and Moses asked his name and he says, I am, mm -hmm. right? Because God just is. God is. He's never changing. He always is, always was, always will be. He is. And I was sort of like that. I just was. I was never changing. I was never. I would be misery. I was misery and I would be it forever. And I knew that. And I knew that I deserved that. And that was the, that was really the hard part was knowing that that, that whole life before where I thought I was a good guy and I thought I was going to heaven and know that none of that mattered because this was real. Mm -hmm. This is what I deserve. This is what living my life like that got me. And so I knew, I knew the entity that was with me spoke truth. And he knew, I knew that there was a way out. And I knew it was up to me. So the only thing I could do, I couldn't move. I had all this knowledge, so I started using the knowledge. I started, like, reciting poetry, poetry that I wouldn't know. I, I recited this, all the works of Shakespeare, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I did uh, the math problems, like, you know, on the, the movies that are the whole chalkboard across. I was doing those in my head. I did, did logic problems that I don't even I, I don't understand at all. I exhausted the knowledge of the world. Can I, can I ask you in terms of that, just more out of my own curiosity, I suppose, in your memory of these uses of knowledge that you had, a, for lack of a better term, temporary access to in that state, mm -hmm. like are you describing the image now? Like in your mind it was the chalkboards of math and you remember that there was something with logic or like how, how do you so understand So I remember that? doing logic problems. I remember in my – Mind and, and so here's how little I, re I took logic in college. I took a class, right? And there's the there's the circles, mm -hmm. right? And they overlap, and you had to figure out where you were. And that's I don't even remember what those are, but I was doing those in my head on complex logic problems using the rules of logic developed, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years, right? All those all those logic from the Greek and the and I was using all that stuff. I have no idea how. So I remember using it, but I, I, I couldn't do it if I had to now. And the math problems, when I'm saying, like, I could see the math in my head. I wasn't like, there wasn't like a chalkboard, but I could see the entire... Like Rain Man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I yeah. guess it may, might be like, by analogy, because this is hard to conceptualize, because we have nothing to compare against, like, speaking in another language, but not knowing what you're saying, but knowing that you knew what you said. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. So, like, I, I think I read one or two of Shakespeare's works in my education, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not – God bless Shakespeare. I, I, I'm not a fan, right? But, but that was one of the ones I do remember. I recited all of them just to myself, mm -hmm. all of the works. I knew them. I, I knew them. I had access to them. It was, like, literally the libraries of the world were at my access, and only I didn't have to read them. I just knew them. And so, I, like, in, in my mind, I thought, if I do something, if I use this knowledge in some way, it's the only thing I have left. Mm -hmm. I have nothing but misery, pain, suffering, sadness, remorse. It's all I have, and I have all this knowledge. I guess, yeah, just to clarify, so this knowledge was clearly for you to use. Did you know that? 
I must. As you, yeah. I must have. Right. It wasn't right? like a well, suspicion. Was, I don't know that I knew yeah. that I was to use it. I knew it was available. Okay. It was available to me. And, then, and not understanding where I was and knowing there was a way out and thinking that it was something I could do. Mm-hmm. And then is, to clarify also, my second question was yeah. this this available knowledge, this knowledge of the world, it didn't give you any solace whatsoever. No. You no, yeah, it was no. no pleasure, nothing. Not at all. Yeah. Not even the fact, like, there was no pride in saying, wow, look at what I know. Right. Because there was no pride. I had no pride. There was nothing but remorse, yeah. regret, misery. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have God, and it was horrifying. And I usually say this, I usually say this at the end of my talk. If you were to tell me that I had to go the rest of my life and that I would live until I was 150, that I had to go the rest of my life and live where the peak of my physical pain was right after the wreck, or I could choose one second without God, I would take the hundred and some years of sheer horrible pain without even batting an eye. I would take it rather than suffer. One second without the Lord, because that pain, that's real pain. So, yeah, there was no joy. There was no happiness. There was no pride. There was nothing good. Uh, And at some point, I got to where I exhausted. There was no more knowledge. There was none. And uh, I kind of did a self-evaluation and I I looked at it and I said, okay, this is where you are. This is forever. This will never change. You were here because of the actions actions that, that you made on earth, the decisions you made on earth. This is where you are. This is a just place for you. This is where you belong. And there is nothing you can do that will free you. And so I gave up trying to help myself. I just gave up trying to help myself, knowing there was nothing I could do to free me. And at that moment, that red liquid, which I could not look away from, turned just ever so slightly lesser shade. It paled a little bit. And I thought, oh, something's happening. I'm like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And then I reminded myself, you're not doing anything. You can't do anything. And at that point, I don't know, I've been, I've been thinking about this and praying on it a lot. It, it seemed like it all just sort of disintegrated, but, it, but as I think about it, I feel like maybe I passed up through that liquid and I found myself laying face up in, on a, on a gentle knoll, the most lush green grass field, tall, green, lush grass, green in a way I've never seen. And I was staring up into a blue sky like nothing, not a cloud in it, just absolutely the purest, most beautiful blue. And there was a peace. And the entity was back. Only where, when he was in that room with me, I felt that he had an indifference he didn't really, I didn't feel that he hated me nor loved me. And the only little bit of pity I felt was when he gave that chuckle. Uh, 
And he was there, and so I said, am I out? And he said, you're out. And I said, is this real? And he said, this is real. And then sort of everything went black, and then I'm right back in my, my room, and I'll be honest with you, if a second passed, I would be surprised. And in reality, when I think about the knowledge that I used, remember, I didn't sleep, I didn't eat, I didn't, I just, I lived, I, I, mm -hmm. I used that knowledge. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many years it would have taken, never stopping to use it all, but it would have taken years to use the knowledge that I use. And then I realized something. There, of everything that I did in that room, there was one thing I did not do. I, I did not pray. Mm. And I know, I know why I didn't pray. I did not pray because I did not know prayer existed. I knew of God and I knew he left, he let go of me. He was not with me. And then I, that's when I realized, and after studying and reading about the saints and the catechism, and I realized that prayer wells up in us from the Holy Spirit. Prayer comes from God. If God is not with us, then we can't pray. If we can pray, then God is with us. So mm. hallelujah if you can pray. I could not pray. And then that made it me understand, as I studied more, why that entity chuckled with that little bit of pity when I asked about purgatory. Mm -hmm. At first, I doubted. I'm like, well, maybe maybe there isn't a purgatory. Maybe that's why he chuckled. But no. See, the souls in purgatory, they can pray. Mm -hmm. They can't pray for themselves, but they can pray. They know of God, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of that. I wasn't in purgatory. I, I was somewhere. But... I think that I think there there was a little bit of a a little bit of pity for my lack of understanding, but but I realized that without God, I there was no prayer. I couldn't pray anything. I didn't know prayer existed. So the next the next morning, I um, actually before the next morning, it, this is this is where I first became aware of the spiritual battle. See, the spiritual battle rages around us all the time, all day. It's mm -hmm. a constant battle. But, you know, we become, become conditioned. We don't even see it. But as soon as I kind of came to from that, I say came to because I wasn't asleep, but when I was back in my bed, as soon as I was back in my bed, there was a seed. It was almost like a voice planted in, that said brain damage. Now, see, that was one of the things that we were sure of. They did like every test you could do. Mm -hmm. In all of this crash, I mean, all of this injury, all of this just wreaking havoc on my body, my spinal cord and my brain were not at all damaged. Wow. Nothing. Not even a concussion. Nothing. Okay, so we knew my brain was intact, but yet that little voice says brain damage. It plants mm -hmm. that little seed of doubt. That what I saw wasn't in a vision; it was just a damaged mind, mm -hmm. right? So you know, the next day, I I don't want to tell anybody about this because one, I think they'll think I'm crazy, and two, I I had I had a realization. You know, I went into this wreck knowing that I was going to heaven, <laughs> and, and and I I realized and I understood the timeline of this. That memory that I relived, that I just told you about, that happened earlier on. And I do believe that it happened most likely at the moment of impact. Mm -hmm. 
And that goes back to me waking up on the table and saying it would have been easier to choose death. So my, my, in my mind, what I, the way I, I understand it, and again, this may evolve, at the moment of impact, the impact that should have killed me, I go somewhere, I make a decision, and that experience was part of that decision. Mm-hmm. So you being in the room was after the impact. Yes. I believe that happened sometime in that space between the second hand of, of life that an eternity could happen in the other world. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I was sitting in my bed thinking, wow, I don't think I'm going to heaven. And let me tell you, to, to actually sit there and think about that for the first time in your in your life and realize, I went somewhere and it wasn't heaven. That's a pretty stark hmm. revelation. So, uh, you know, that, that, that happened probably maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night. By the next morning, my brother comes in and he's getting ready to go back to Pennsylvania and and my wife comes in a little bit later. And by the time she gets in, it's late morning. And, and man, you know, I, I had, was pretty much pain all the time. But, like, the pain was starting to ratchet up. Like, I'm like, okay, we're nine days in on this now. And this hurts more now than it ever did. And uh, I'm, I'm behind on my pain medicine. They were pretty good at bringing the pain medicine in. But, man, I'm, I'm behind on the pain medicine. And, and it... Now that saturation is getting I'm more saturated in pain, more stimulus is, is bothering me. My wife is there. Um, and one of the things that I didn't realize, I had my brother call her when he was in earlier. When we left the ICU, I had a rosary hanging on my bed. And in the move, it got taken. And that mm-hmm. first night, I did not have a rosary with me. So it's pretty scared. I mean, that's pretty. I went to a pretty scary place, losing God's touch. Now, here's the the miraculous thing about it: is that the moment I was back in my bed, I could feel where God's hand was not. I could feel His hand holding me, and I feel it right now. I feel it, and I can, and I promise you, gentlemen, that I am not special in any way. That the Lord is holding your soul just like He's holding mine. I know that. That was a truth that got to come back with me. And I could feel his hand again. And I thought, I can't believe I went my whole life and I never felt this. But it was it was back. And I could feel the Lord was holding me again. So I asked my wife to bring a rosary in. But she, she brought the rosary in and, and hung it on the bed. And But man, that pain was ratcheting up. And, and her being there was was causing me even more pain. And, and so I told her, I said, look, you... You've spent a lot of time here. The kids are young. My kids are pretty young. You know, I, my oldest was, I think, 16, and my youngest was 12. And I said, you know, go spend time with the kids, and, and I'll be okay, you know. And I said, but on your way out, stop at the nurse's station and remind them I don't have, I don't have my pain medicine. So she left, and no pain medicine, and hours are gone by, and I, I hit the call button, and they'd say they come in, but nothing, nothing, nothing. And finally, eventually, a a man comes in. He's he's a nurse, and um, he's writing his name on the on the whiteboard in the room. And and you know, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. And I said, "Oh, he told me he was going to be my nurse that night." And I, I said, "Oh, thank." I said, "Thank goodness." I said, uh, "I am so behind on my pain medicine." And 
he turned around and he said, did no one tell you? And I said, what? He said, there was a mistake made this morning. We can't give you anything for another 18 hours, not even Tylenol. And I was like, oh my gosh. And you know, the pain is ratcheting up moment by moment. You know, and then he did something uh, that I try to uh, pass on. I try to do myself. Uh, he, he sat down next to me and he spent time with me and we talked. We didn't talk about like my injuries or my wreck or we just talked. And, and like one of the things he, he told me that he was traveled, he traveled and that he would be in another hospital tomorrow and that I would be home before he was back at that hospital. Um, and we just talked about stuff. He spent time, he's just spent time with me. And, uh, and I often wonder if, you know, if he was an angel and, and if he wasn't an angel, he behaved like one. And I realized that we all have that opportunity. We can all behave like an angel for someone in need. And so I've tried to keep that memory. And, and I think about what he said about, I, I, I talked to him for so long, so long that me, I'm all broken. I'm, I'm a mess. Right. And, he spent so much time with me. And I'm thinking like 45 minutes. And if you've ever spent any time in a hospital, nurses don't have 45 minutes to do mm -hmm. anything. I finally said, geez, you have so much to do. You need to move on. You need to go see your other patients. And he said, I have nothing else to do right now. And, and, that, and he just spent time with me. And I think every once in a while, we need to, we need to stop what we're trying to do in our day and, and take that time with people and say, okay, you know what? I have nothing else to do right now but to spend time with this person who needs it. And so I realized I had 18 hours to go before I could have any pain medicine. It was going to get really bad. So, again, I, the, the family was all chased out and I was alone. And at this point, the nurses uh, weren't attending to me anywhere near like, like before. And I decided that, well, I don't think I'll be able to sleep because of the pain, but maybe I'll close my eyes, maybe I'll fall asleep, and maybe I'll pass some of that time. So I, I closed my eyes, and it was like, I didn't just close my eyes, I closed my eyes, and it was as if my whole body was moved, and I was peering over a ledge, a vast, vast abyss of darkness, a pit, and at the bottom of this pit were these reptile-like creatures. They, they had human bodies, but like reptile-like heads and, and multiple eyes and multiple mouths. And, and they were just all in a mass of them, a, a countless number of them entwined together, covered in blood. And the wailing, the wailing that came up again causes goosebumps. It was horrifying. It was like soul-stealing, soul-crushing horror. And I immediately opened my eyes, and the sound is gone. The, the vision's gone. Mm -hmm. And I think, okay, the little voice says brain damage. And I close my eyes again, and sure enough, I'm right there, and I can hear it, and I can see it, and it, it's just terrifying. And so I open my eyes again, determined that I'm not going to close them again. And I ask Jesus to send the Holy Spirit to take that vision away. But I did not close my eyes again because 
the man of little faith. I, I didn't think that he would send the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so I decided that I was going to just talk to Jesus instead. And I, the first thing I asked was, I asked him to take my pain. And then again, this kind of goes back to proving my point that prayer comes from God. I ask him to take my pain, and then a prayer comes out of me that is completely foreign to my thought, to my understanding, something that I didn't understand, I didn't know, I'd never heard. I said, no, that's not fair. I will carry my pain. You've already carried my pain once. I will carry my pain for the salvation of the world. Completely foreign idea to me. And so then I talked to him about the passion. And I, I told him, I said, I, I never understood how much pain you suffered for us. They pierced your hands and your feet, and my own bones have pierced my skin. They, they scourged you and tore the skin on your back, and the skin on my back has been torn. You, you hung on the cross for hours suffocating. I was trapped in the car for hours suffocating. I've realized that the Lord was giving me just a little taste what, what it was that I could handle of his passion, that I could feel that. And we, we talked for a while and uh, maybe an hour and then, you know, something happened and I told Jesus that I was tired and I was going to close my eyes, which before I was afraid to. I didn't mm -hmm. even think twice about it. And so I I closed my eyes, and right in front of me was this, uh, you know, about the size of a, of a grapefruit. This beautiful, okay, and, and now here we are. We're going back into that other world, right? There are no words to describe what I'm going to describe. Just like there are no words to describe the horror, there are no words to describe the beauty and, and the words that I use are so pale that I almost feel they're, they're blasphemous to use. But this ball of light is, is right there, you know, and it's so beautiful. So I immediately open my eyes. And again, the voice says, brain damage. And so now I'm really worried. And I'm going to call the nurse. So I have one hand that they left unoperated on so that I could use, like, the call button. And as I reach down to push the button... There's a voice next to me, an audible voice in the room, in the chair, right next to my bed that says, look at it, it is the Holy Spirit. And I immediately turn and I look and there's nobody there. So now I know that I have brain damage. <laughs> Remember, I'm the man of little faith, right? And as I am ready to push that button, the, the voice goes from outside to inside my head, and it says, look at it. It is the Holy Spirit. Now, when it went in my head, I realized when I was a kid, I had heard that voice. And I knew that voice was truth. And that voice had helped me to save a life. And so I believed it. I knew it. And so I let go of the call button, and I, I looked at it. I looked at the, that beautiful ball of light, and uh, 
as I looked at it, I, I felt myself being transported out uh, into the vastness of space. And uh, as I got closer to the Holy Spirit, it, it, I say it because that's what I thought of it at the time. And I understand that the Holy Spirit is He. And I even have thought a little bit about why the voice said, look at it. But I was so poorly catechized. If he would have said, look at him, I would have not understood what he meant. So to me at that time, the Holy Spirit was an it. And now I understand the Holy Spirit is he. So forgive me for using that term, but that's the way I, in my poorly taught mind, understood mm -hmm. him. So as I got to to the Holy Spirit, I realized that he had grown into enormity, I mean, massively big and so brilliantly bright that you, you couldn't look at him. And, and so there was this gossamer fog that sort of covered him and it blocked just enough light to allow you to look. And it was pulled at the poles, north and south, east and west, into like a symmetrical cross. And it was just this beautiful illuminated fog, mist. And so the voice said, look at him. And so I did. I, I looked all around. I could look deeply into him. And on the surface, it, it, it was like moving. I, I don't know. I can't explain it, but I knew he was alive. And I immediately thought, my gosh, he looks like he looks like a star. Like when you watch like the Science Channel and they have pictures of our sun, it, mm -hmm. that's kind of what it looked like. But but beautiful. Like I look at the picture of the sun and say, okay, that's neat. But this was beyond. This was like you couldn't take your eyes off of him. And so I peeked all around. I remember like I was looking at him from all sides, and I it reminded me. I felt like. It reminded me of being a, a small child and peeking under the Christmas tree, like when your parents put the presents under there and you were like kind of looking to see, is there anything for me? And you know, you, you're going to get caught, you don't want to get in trouble. And that's what I kind of felt like, but I, there was no reason to feel that. It's just, it just, a, it, it, it's how I remember that like I was, I didn't know if I could look like that hard. And so when I was done looking at it, I just, I looked at him and I, face on and the beauty was just staggering. It, and so I could feel, the first thing I felt was I could feel power, power like, power like I can't even describe. And I knew that it reached to the ends of the universe and it didn't, it didn't take time. It was there. It was there and it was instantly there and it traveled through. I could feel it traveling through me on its way to the edge of the universe, this, this power. And I realized I, it's when I first, I got such contempt for the enemy. And I thought, here I am. I'm just a mere mortal man with a, such a limited intellect. And I thought, this power is so vast, so strong, that no one, nothing could ever defeat it. And how ludicrous it would be to think you could win against this power. And, and then I, 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 I had like such lack of respect for the enemy. For how, how could he think he could win? How could, how could he think he could win against the Lord? And, and he's smarter, right? He's an angel. Now, I'm just some dumb man and I know that. Like how could he not know that? That was the first thing. And then I, and then I felt, just like I felt that power passing through me, I felt love. 
and it was touching me. Now, I did not have a body, but I, I swear I could feel it like we feel sun, the rays of sun on our skin. I could feel love. I know that sounds crazy. I'm not saying I felt loved, right? We all have felt loved by somebody, mm -hmm. you know, and somebody. No, I could feel love like it was a physical thing, like sunlight touching me. And then I could feel mercy the same way, physically touching me. And then it was afterwards that I actually pondered this and I started looking at the catechism that, that God the Father is love and God the Son is mercy. And the Holy Spirit is power. And I felt all of them touching me through the Holy Spirit. And then scripture passages flooded my mind. And the first one was, oh my goodness, it would be so easy for God to pass a camel through the eye of the needle. With this vast power, anything is possible. Anything is possible. It would be so easy. It would be the easiest thing he did that day. And then the next one was, if we only had faith the size of a mustard seed, it only takes a tiny, tiny little bit of our faith, tiniest little bit, when it's multiplied against that infinite power, we really could indeed move mountains because anything would be possible with that vast power of the Lord if just the littlest of faith. And then as I looked at the Holy Spirit and I looked at how it looked with those, with those beautiful gossamer spires and I realized he looks like the Christmas star that we see in all the beautiful paintings, right? And it, and it, and it kind of made sense to me. I understood that as a kid, I always would go out of my house at Christmas time and I would look up at the stars and there were like a million stars above my house. And I would think, how did the wise men pick the right house to go in? But now I'm looking at the Holy Spirit and I realized that the Holy, present, Holy Spirit presented himself to those wise men, to all those who needed to see, but the ones who didn't, he didn't present them. And they saw it and they followed him over the next hill, over the next mountain, over the next desert. He kept following him that he finally come to rest over the house where Jesus was. And it made so much sense. Well, why didn't Herod just follow the same star if he wanted to find the Christ child? Because he couldn't see it. Because like, like Jesus in his ministry, he only showed himself to who needed to see eyes to see what, i'm sorry like ears to hear and eyes to see yeah. today's right. reading oh. <laughs> isn't that funny <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah and you know and it made sense why why a man could walk up to a fisherman and say follow me and he would drop everything and follow him because they saw what the lord wanted him to see right and uh and then I got to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him. And they come and they say, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. Right? And then they fall to the ground. And I know because for that moment, he showed them what I was seeing. He showed, him, he showed them that power. And no man could stand in, in the presence of that power. And he did that. He did that not only for them, but he did that for us. See, he wanted them and he wanted us to know that they did not take him. They could not take him. But he willingly went. And, uh, you know, the pain, I had, there was no pain. And there was just this joy and this happiness and this peace. I never wanted to leave there. 
And, and I realized that I had been homesick for this place, for this time with the Holy Spirit. I had been homesick for it my whole life, and I never knew. And I never wanted to leave. And I was timeless again. And, you know, I had this knowledge where before I had the knowledge of the world, I had, I'll call it the knowledge of the universe. It was permeating into me from the Holy Spirit, and I understood everything. I understood all those things that we call mysteries of our faith. We call them mysteries because of our minimal human intellect, right? Our little human brains. We can't possibly understand it. But he had elevated my intellect so that I could. And I, I understood, I understood the Trinity. Now, let me tell you this. If any man tells you that they understand the Trinity, you can assume they're lying. And I can assure you that I do not understand it now. But then I did. It all made sense. All of it. And I wanted to stay there forever. And I knew at this moment I could see my family. And I knew they would be okay. Because, you know, the, God takes care of us all. I knew they would be okay. And I wanted to stay. And at that moment, one of those beautiful spires reached out and touched me in my soul. And I could feel the Holy Spirit pouring into me. And at the same time, I was pouring in. I was emptying into him. And he was emptying into me. And it was beautiful, just beauty and peace and bliss and love and ecstasy and all the good things that, all the good things that, I, I mean, I'm saying these words and I, I, it, it makes no sense, but It was, it, it just was so intense and so beautiful and so peaceful and so blissful. And the only thing I could say was more. I wanted more. And he continued to pour into me and I poured into him and, and it increased and increased and increased until I lost consciousness and I woke up in my bed the next morning. Now this happened maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And the sun was up. It was probably seven or so in the morning when, when I woke up. And I had slept the night through pain-free. I don't even know if nurses came in to check on me. And I was still pain-free. And I had not been able to get any medicine. I wasn't going to be able to get medicine until like eight o'clock in the morning. And, it, you know, in reality, the... the uh, the pain didn't return to me until I took my first dose of pain medicine. Hmm. I came back. You know, I um, I doubted this story for a year. You know, that seed that was planted with the brain damage. I, I doubted it. I I uh, I went and I talked to the as many nurses and doctors as I could find. I, I went to the EMTs. I, I, I asked all the questions about, like, if we talked about me being trapped and if I was out and if this was real. I asked all those questions, right? And everybody said, no, 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 we didn't talk to you at all. And, and then I even talked to anesthesiologists, and I thought, well, perhaps I hallucinated all of this while I was under, I was under so mm -hmm. many, right? They sedate, I was sedated all the time for all these surgeries. 
and I shared it with a, a anesthesiologist that I am am friends with, right? And mm-hmm. I this was this was after I kind of came out public and started talking about it, and he had read my book, and he he came up to me and he said, you know, you say you doubt it, and you, he said, but I can assure you this. He said, when we sedate you, because there's a reason why we put you on breathing machines and we we do all of this. He said because your brain loses all of its function. And he goes, you can't dream. You can't think. You can't do anything. That's why we do it for you. Mm-hmm. He said, so you didn't imagine this. I can promise you it wasn't drug-induced. So I doubted for a year. And um, so finally I, uh, I told my priest, right, and, and – uh, Again, how God works in our lives. Uh, we had just moved to that church a few months before the wreck. And uh, I scheduled a meeting and I told him the story, just like I'm telling you now. And I went into it with with the expectation that uh, he would slap me across the face, call me a blasphemer, tell me to get out, never come back to the church again. But instead, he reached over his shoulder he goes, oh, no. He goes, you need to read this book. And he handed me The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila. And he's like, St. Teresa and St. John had the same, same exact experience. That's called the prayer of union. And, and, and so I read about it. And, and St. Teresa describes that Holy Spirit touching you like that mm-hmm. as the prayer of union. And that she describes it the same way. But here's the really amazing thing. So she wrote her book in the 1500s. After she saw the Holy Spirit for the first time, she said that he resembled what a star would look like if you could see it up close. And I think about that, the 1500s, like how did she know? We have mm-hmm. the science channel. We can we can know what a star looks And I just remember my poor wife, I would read this. I couldn't sleep very well because I, I had, you know, chronic pain. And, and, and early on, the first few years, I didn't sleep very much at all. I would wake my wife up. Like, You're never going to believe it. <laughs> My wife, by the way, is a saint because could you imagine living with a man like me? Because <laughs> I, I talk about this to anyone, everyone, mm-hmm. all the time. And she's very uh, generous by letting me have that time to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's it. That's the story. You know, and, and, and there, there we go back to the beginning of it. You know, they told me. They told me that I would never walk again, and I walked. They told me that I would get hooked on the drugs, and I didn't. And as a matter of fact, I very rarely took any drugs, even after my surgeries. I, I started not taking anything at all. I tried to manage it with just over-the-counter stuff because I realized there is so much good that we can do with our suffering. It is such a strong and powerful prayer to carry that like Simon of Cyrene. We all have the chance to be Simon. You know, the Lord tells us that if you want to come after me to pick up your cross and carry it, right? We all have crosses. We all have pain. It's not all the same, but it's all pain. Some's emotional. Some's physical. Some's mental. But when we decide to carry that for him, you know, every day, I tell him that I want to pick up my cross and carry it as an offering of love that you may feel from your own passion. See, before I 
before I got to exit time a couple, because when I was with the Holy Spirit again, again, that was another timeless period, and mm-hmm. I was aware of it. And again, I don't know if I was there for 10 seconds or 10 years. But big difference was that was a timeless place that I never wanted to end. Mm-hmm. And the other place, all you could do was wish that it would end, and it, you knew it never would. And all I wanted to do with the Holy Spirit was wish it could stay forever. But I've exited time a few, a few times now, and and um, I know that's crazy. We joke around here at the office. You gotta be, you know, oh, you're getting all timey wimey because basically you can't even talk about it. It's it just same, doesn't work. It's the same conversation that we try to work out the Trinity. Yeah, you know that conversation. Yeah, that's often when the timey wimey. Yeah, there's an old joke from when I was in seminary. I'm, it's probably 300 years old at this point. Like. You know, careful when you talk about the Trinity because you'll end up speaking heresy. It's just <laughs> right. You're just trying to like, well, it goes this way and then yeah. it comes back around. <laughs> triangle. Right. Um, before, so, well, well, let wanted, me finish one. Yeah, let yeah. me finish one thought there, though. So, mm-hmm. on suffering, I'm sort of a guru on suffering now, and um, I always wondered. I never could understand how. How did Jesus die for my sins when he died 2,000 years ago and I wasn't even born yet? But see, now I I do understand because Jesus, God the Son, was always connected with God the Father who sees all of time at once. And so while Jesus hangs on the cross, right now we speak and talk. Now he's not dying again. But from God's perspective, it's all happening at the same moment. So when we sin, Jesus is hanging on the cross and carrying that pain for us. And and so if that's the case, then we have the opportunity to carry our pain for him and he can fill it from his own passion. And we... (laughs) By picking up our cross and carrying it for him, you know, there are days that it's so bad. And, and I, would, I, I, would, I would really do a lot of uh, con- contemplative type prayer where I would go through my day and, and it was so bad that I would literally imagine carrying that cross with him next to me that I was just like Simon, right? Simon didn't go into it willingly at first. But Simon's two children became saints in the church, which means that there was a conversion there. Well, we don't really hear about that, but it, it had to happen. And, you know, Simon went into it maybe not willingly, but by the end, he was a different man. And we can be that way too. And, you know, there are days that are so bad that, you know, that cross and Jesus is here. And I almost can feel the, the crown of thorns poking me in the head while I'm carrying that cross. And, you know, the funny thing is I, was al- I would always think, and I thought it was me encouraging him. And I would say, just a little further. And then I realized that it isn't me encouraging him, but it's him encouraging me. He's the one that's saying, just a little further. And it, when I go to pick up my cross and carry it with him, I realize that he ends up picking up mine and carrying it with me. And it's something that each and every one of us are blessed with the opportunity to use our suffering in that way. Imagine a world if everybody carried their cross for Christ, with Christ, and let Christ carry his with him. 
You had a question and I interrupted you. Back um, when you first heard the voice to say, look at the Holy Spirit, you said you'd recognized it yeah. before. So I write, I write about that in the book. And usually when I do a talk, that's my teaser to make people want to read the book. Hmm. Um, and again, I give my book away at the talks. And so it's not like I'm trying to make money off of it. I mm-hmm. just want people to read it because no matter what I do when I tell this story, it's such a big story. There's always parts that are missing. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what the benefit of the book is that I could sit there and write it and then say, oh, I missed this part. I'm going to put this in. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the benefit of having the book is having the time. Of, you know, it took me years to really come up with that book. So um, so when I was if we have time, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We got plenty of time. Um, when I was 15 or 16 years old, uh, I worked at a state park in western Pennsylvania and it was an open water beach on a big lake. Mm hmm. And it was big. And on the weekends, we would have five to 8,000 people a day at that beach. And so it was about 300 yards long and about 50 yards deep. And, or, you know, not, it was only like six foot deep at the end, mm-hmm. but it was 50 yards out. And we had lifeguard chairs out in the water and we had lifeguard chairs in the, and, you know, those days, it was one of those, one of those days we had 7,000 people, 8,000 people there, which is a lot, you know, and it's hard to see when, I mean, the, the water's just packed with people and, you know, it's lake water and it's murky and it's loud. Everybody's screaming, you know, and, and I'm on the chair, um, and I hear somebody screaming, which is, it makes no sense because everybody's screaming, but I can hear somebody screaming. And I look and out deep, deeper than they should be. I see a little girl and she's looking at me screaming and with her one arm she's holding an elbow just the only thing that's out of the water is an elbow and I realize that she's holding somebody so I blow my whistle a warning to the other lifeguards but it's so loud they don't hear I jump off and I run out of the water and I swim out and I grab that elbow and I bring it in and it's it's a little girl probably the same age as the other girl maybe seven or eight and the water was probably six foot deep at that place so very deep for them and uh there was a there was a small beach area where we brought sand in right and it was only like 10 yards deep but there was acres and acres of grass on a gentle hill that came down mm-hmm. and i went and i put her uh head up you know head uphill and i started to do the evaluation she was purple uh, <laughs> The, just the strangest, scariest shade, you know, and, and um, she wasn't breathing. Her heart wasn't beating. And I tried to do CPR and I couldn't get any, I couldn't get air and I couldn't inflate her lungs. So I, I assumed she was full of water. And uh, so I did the maneuver of pushing on her stomach to, to clear the water and, and some water came out and I tried breathing again. And by this point, the lifeguard that was on break and, and a park ranger came down and they were kneeling down by me. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get air into her chest. And so I started screaming in my head, help me, God, help me. And then this voice, it was the same voice, 
This voice said, place your head by the water. And I said, help me, God, help me. And he said, place her head by the water. And this exchange went on. Meanwhile, I'm working, trying feverishly to clear her airway and trying to breathe. And in my mind, I'm screaming, help me, God, help me. And this very calm voice, the same voice that was in my head that told me, look at it, keeps saying, place her head by the water. And then finally, it grows firm and it says, she is full of water. You cannot drain it out. Place her head by the water and let the slope drain the water out. Oh, <laughs> so I, I stop what I'm doing and, and I, I'm getting ready to move her. And the, the ranger puts his hand on my shoulders. And he's like, Ed, you have to keep doing CPR until help gets here. And so I scream at him and I say, she's full of water. I can't get her out. I, I repeat what the voice told me. And so he helps me and we re reposition her. And then I, I do the clearing maneuver. And again, she is like, she's purple, like, like purple Gatorade. Like she is, you know, it's been so long since she's breathed. And uh, I push on her stomach and water starts coming out. Like it was like a river of water coming out. And it just kept coming and coming and coming. And I realized I'd never be able to get that out without the slope, the gravity helping. And finally, the last bit of water comes out and she coughs which is like music, right? Because if you're coughing, you're breathing. Mm -hmm. And she coughs a few times, starts crying, and she turns like you know, normal color again. Ranger picked her up and went up. By this time, the ambulance is just coming. And I kind of roll back onto my butt. I didn't realize it. Like, the whole beach is surrounded us, you know. And I'm exhausted. Uh and one person after another is, you know, telling me a nice job. And, and I'm thinking, I didn't do anything. I didn't save this girl. Uh, I'm like, the voice did. You know, I'm like, what What was that? And and so after a little while, I, I work my way up to the ambulance and the ranger's there. And he steps forward and I think, okay, well, I've got to apologize because I'm a kid. <laughs> I you know, screamed at this guy, you know, and I, he shook my hand, and I said, hey, I have to apologize. I'm sorry for yelling at you. And he said, what do you mean? You didn't yell at me. He said, you're so very calm the whole time. He goes, and you were exactly right. You needed, you needed the slope to help you get that water out. He's like, great thinking. And I thought, geez, I felt like a fraud, you know. Everybody thought I saved this little girl, but I was panicked. I was screaming in my head. And that voice saved her. And I knew that voice. And, you know, it's back to that. I was 15 or 16 years old. You know, the funny thing is, is like, I told my wife about that story when we, you know, when we were maybe dating or maybe getting married. She had asked if I'd ever saved anybody. And I said, well, there was this one time. Mm -hmm. um, I told her about it. And, uh, I never thought about it again. And isn't that amazing? I mean, like, never talked about it. Never, never told really anybody about it. Uh, and again, maybe that's part of the spiritual battle, right? Because that whole time I had that feeling of guilt, like 
I was taking credit for something I didn't do, right? But maybe that's part of that spiritual battle, that little voice saying, oh, don't talk about that. He didn't really help her, right? Mm. Um, but, you know, fast forward 30-some years or whatever, and there I am in that hospital room, and that voice, when it, when it spoke to me in my head, I didn't recognize it audibly. Or maybe I did, and it caught me off guard because I knew I was alone. But when it moved into my head, and then I, I knew, I knew, I knew that I, that whole story came back, you know, and I thought, okay, I'll look at it. Because I know, I know that you're, you're one of God's helpers, right? You're, whether it was the Holy Spirit or an angel or whatever, but, you know. Um, and, and that goes to one of the things I talk about. I usually end as well. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, what is what is it like when to hear God's voice? And I say, oh, I, I don't think God himself spoke to me. And the reason I'm pretty sure of that is, is that God chose an angel to speak to Mary. So I'm pretty sure that he did not <laughs> speak directly to me, that if, if he didn't talk directly to Mary, he probably sent somebody else, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's the wow. story about the, the, the voice. And, you know, it makes me think, you know, you go back and we can all do this. And, and it is, it is part of the spiritual battle because, you know, when we get closer to the Lord, the enemy loses, right? Because there is no battle. One of the things I knew when I was in the presence of the Holy Spirit, there is no battle between God and the enemy. It happened. It's over. Enemy lost. There's nothing that he could ever do. I mean, he is just one of God's creatures. Mm -hmm. He'll never win. The battle is between us and the enemy, right, for our soul. That's where the battle is now. And so I look back at my life of all these miraculous things that, that happened that I never really talked about. And most people can look back at some pretty amazing things that happened and say, yeah, you know, yeah, that... That was pretty miraculous, but you know, I never really ever talked about it or gave it a second thought. And and maybe that's part of the battle. Maybe if all of us started sharing these miraculous stories that we have, we all have them. They might not all be as spectacular as what I just told you. We all have stories of where God did something where you say, okay, that's sort of outside the bounds of just mere chance, you know. And we fail to talk about them. We fail to identify them. We fail to see them. And maybe, and again, the enemy... Forget about them. Yeah. yeah. The enemy wants to lead us away, right? So I always tell people, if you're not being attacked spiritually, that's when you really should worry. Because if, you know, like a mm -hmm. spinning top, you can spin a top. You guys are too old. You probably don't know. The old people in the crowd like listening to this. Yeah. Spins the top. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a movie. Yeah. I know. I didn't see it, but... Yeah. <laughs> A, a spinning top will stay spinning. If you have a good top, it'll stay spinning a long, long time, right? Mm -hmm. Until you disturb it. So the enemy works that way. You know, if we're on that path to God, well, that's not where he wants us to go. So he's going to poke us, try to get us off the path. If we're on the path to him already, to the enemy, if we're already on that path, like a spinning top, he's going to let us ride, man. We already got that going. He's not going to poke us. And that's why I always tell people, if if you're not being spiritually attacked, you really need to reevaluate your life. Mm -hmm. It mean, reminds me of um, Ignatius' discernment of spirits. I forget which rules they are, but one of them is essentially exactly what you said, just different words. It's like if you are on the good path, 
you'll be bothered by pokes and prods and annoyances from the enemy, yeah. and you'll receive comfort and consolation from the Lord, the good side. Yeah. Or in the reverse is true. If you're on the bad path, you receive comfort and consolation and good feeling from the enemy, and you'll receive pokes and prods and guilts from the good side. The good so side. Like, yeah. So to your back to your point about uniting your suffering with the cross mm-hmm. and the passion. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's a Pennsylvania slash Indi- uh, Indiana accent, but did you say that uh, you when you unite our suffering with the cross, the Christ fills your suffering with his passion, or he feels his suffering with your he, pa- um, with his passion? So he can. F- so if we make an offering of love to the Lord, he feels okay. our offering of love. He I, feels that. I thought so. He's from his suffering on the cross, right? He is he's carrying each and every one of our sins, mm-hmm. which means that if he can feel each and every one of my sins, he can also feel each and every one of my offerings of love to him. Yes. So to that point, um, I feel like we can have this sense that we're alone either in our suffering or uh, like in a spiritual sense you're mm-hmm. suffering like you you feel despair right yeah. or i have this ailment maybe it's a rare disease and nobody very few people can empathize with me in my pain but christ can yeah. he's always with you with that suffering okay. and yeah yeah so it? so one I can tell you this. No one is ever alone because mm-hmm. one of the things that I knew, I, I'm not special, that God is holding your soul right now. Right. Which means that God is touching you mm-hmm. physically. This isn't a metaphor. I felt, okay, so when when I lost his touch, imagine this. Uh, and you guys can do this right now. And the people yeah. at home can do it. Grab your arm and hold it. And we're just going to squeeze it firmly. Right, and we're going to hold it for a little while, and we're going to talk while we're holding our arm, mm-hmm. and and so God is always with us. And I used to think about that the footprints poem, you know, where mm-hmm. you're walking and you see one set and two sets. And and before the wreck, I would be like, oh, yeah, that's nice. I don't think that's that's not really how it happens. I'm I don't feel God walking with me when things things are, are bad. They're bad, right? And and but then since the wreck. I look at the impossibility of what I've been through because we've only scratched the surface. I didn't talk about any of my recovery, about any of the uh, physical therapy and the things that that I had to do and uh, to rebuild me. And and there is no way I can tell you this. There is no way I could have made it through any of that. And now I look at it and I say, yeah, there, there were times that I kept going. And it was impossible for me to keep going. And I'm looking back and I'm seeing one set of footprints. Only now I realize, oh, God, you were carrying me because I couldn't walk. All right, now I want you to let go of your hand. Can you feel the absence? Mm-hmm. Imagine imagine God holding your soul for 40-some years and then it lets go. All right, and we don't know that. He's held your soul from before conception. He's held your soul in his hand. We don't know any different. But I can tell you this. When he pray he never has to let go of it because uh, yeah yeah. something the thing i wanted to add to that point is i've heard in a video um, from fulton sheen's uh his tv show he used to have a big fan of his 
he said, and I don't know if this is scripturally based, but I'll take his word for it. it spoke to me that during Christ's ministry, he healed thousands, thousands of people. And you can even see this in the in the chosen these days. Um, you know, if you watch that show, yeah, it's a great show. Yeah, um, all day, Christ is you know in a particular place, you know, in a in a hut, bungalow, something yeah. like that. And people, just the line is miles. People waiting to be healed, and he heals them all. And after he comes back, you know, he grabs some water or something to eat, and then he he's, he passes out because yeah. he's exhausted. Right. Um, Fulton Sheen said that Christ would let out, after each he, each instance of healing, he would let out a sigh, like a groan, like, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was him taking that suffering onto himself and just getting rid of it for that person. Yeah. So the point here is he understands exactly what you're going through yeah. and the way that you are going through it. Yeah. Because those thousands of people, it encompasses all the ailments, all the diseases, mental, physical, emotional, all of them. He healed them all and he experienced them firsthand. And, and let me add to, if you ask me, have I ever, have I suffered through any of this? I will tell you, I did not suffer a moment because It's not suffering when you're doing something out of love for someone, right? I mean, you're not suffering through it. I'm, is there pain? Is there discomfort? Is there maybe some sorrow? Yeah, but it, see, part of it is an, it's all about choices. Remember, I said I was living my life, I was choosing to live my life by the world's standards before, right? It's all choices. And I could have come out of this and I could have chosen to live the rest of my life by the world's standards. And I could have chosen to get addicted to the drugs. I could have chosen to become depressed. But instead, I chose to look at my ailments, my infirmities, infirmities, look at them as opportunities, as prayer, as prayer opportunities, as an opportunity to be closer to the Lord. And then you look at it and you say, okay, well, I'm not really suffering. And it's because it's a choice. It, it, we really, it's free will. And, you know, the Lord never said that this was going to be heaven on earth, right? I mean, in Genesis, we were thrown out and we were supposed to toil the rest of our days. It's not supposed to be utopia here. Not, there, there is supposed to be suffering here. That's part of it. And it's the lies of the enemy that tells us that we need to make this, this is it, this is the place. You need to be the happiest, you need to be the richest, you need to have the most things, you need to have all the comforts. That's the enemy. That's not what God intended. Now, God didn't intend for us to be miserable either. I mean, look at this this place. He threw us out of the garden. and he, We're on this beautiful planet. You, you, you know, I look at these things and I look at the sky and the stars and, the, and you're like, if this is supposed to be, you know, where we got thrown out of thanks, because I don't think you can make anything ugly. All you know? signs of his presence and him holding you like the softball. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, um, yeah, I, uh, it's a choice. And you, you just have to, Padre Pio was really great about talking about suffering and, and the 
the great blessings that the Lord places in those sufferings. And, you know, it's something, but you have to choose that. That is the thing. Like, it's not just magic. It doesn't just happen. You have to make a conscious choice to say, this ailment that I have that, that no one else has, that no one can understand. And, and you're right. The Lord can understand it. And even better yet, Lord, you know what? This is the cross you gave me. And you told me to pick it up. And so here I am. I'm picking it up. I'm advocating for the most literal sense possible. He understands exactly what you're going through. He does. Well, um, yeah. And then I had... He's with you always. Yeah. He said he is. He's touching you. He's holding you. He knows your every thought. He And um, and he's given you an escape mm-hmm. through him. Yeah. So uh, something that I also thought of, or I wanted to ask you, uh, when it comes to telling your story like this, You've been to- you've been told throughout your story a lot of explicit things. Yeah. And there were just truths that you were given yeah. and that you understood. As far as sharing your story goes, is that something it's it's obviously divinely inspired and people need to hear it. But were you told explicitly or is there a truth that you've been that has been revealed to you that you need to tell this story to as many people as possible or is it something that just through divine inspiration you just you, you figured you ought to do. So, right I, to you do. know, again, I went a year, I didn't tell anybody, mm-hmm. um, and I tried to debunk it. Uh, and then when I talked to, to my priest, Father Dale, that, that helped me, um, uh, there, the reason I talked to him was that that year I was trying to debunk it, there was this burning in my soul, like I needed to speak. And there's a there's a scripture passage and I, forgive me for not exactly remembering where or but it it says if if you do not cry out the rocks will or something along those lines right and that was sort of where I was it, it, I would go through and I I particularly remember a, this is really odd but I live out in the country and I have a tractor and I cut the grass on it and it's you know at the time I had a, I had three kids and it, sometimes you don't have privacy you need to prayer to pray and i find that i get a lot of really good prayer on the tractor because one it's incredibly loud and no one can talk to me and i'm moving 100 miles an hour cutting the grass so everybody stays away even the dogs stay away right so it's time to pray and i remember at this point i was on i was still pretty beat up i had braces on my arms and legs and stuff and i'm cutting the grass and i and and it was just like i remember like i don't remember anything i just remember okay lord okay it, I just felt like he kept nudging me and nudging me and nudging me. I'm like, okay, I'll talk. I'm, I'll go and I'll talk to the priest. And, you know, and that's how it started. And when I talked to the priest and he said, yeah, I think this is real. Um, then I thought, okay, well, then there was some validation that I wasn't crazy. You know, that was the big thing. I still, that, that little voice kept telling me, don't tell anyone you're crazy. They'll think you're crazy. You know, but then once... I got the validation. Then once I started looking at the saints, and again, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Padre Pio, right? These are all saints that my priest recommended I start learning more about. And then St. Faustina. Um, then you realize, you're like, okay, this is bigger than just me. This isn't just me. The Lord has done things to all of these people. And as a matter of fact, he's probably done it to thousands of others who haven't spoken about it, right? And so... Then it sort of became like a burning, right? And and we have to be really careful um, 
I try to take no credit for this story, not my story. I just tell it. But, you know, the enemy always wants to try to throw in pride and, and things. And, and I've tried to really keep myself separated from it. Um, and I would sometimes push a little bit too hard and things would fall apart. I would have talks that would fall apart and this and that, you know. And, and so I finally got to the point where I, I, I remember after a certain confrontation, I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to stop trying. I'm not going to tell the story. But if you want me to talk, you set it up. And I will talk until I'm blue in the face. But I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not, I'm not doing it unless you tell me to. And like, seriously, the next morning, I had two emails and a phone call for talks. Right? And, and I thought, okay, well, that, that was pretty fast, you know. Pretty and then you, then you start yeah. doing those talks and you start getting on the roll and you're like, okay, yeah, I want to keep talking. I want to keep reaching people. And I'd start pushing too hard mm-hmm. and things would fall apart. And I'd have to keep reminding myself to pull back and let it be on God's timeline. And that's hard, especially with my background as an airline pilot. I mean, you know, we're point A to point B, get there as fast as we can, safely, efficiently, right? And, and it's hard to... Um, you know, there's always a, even in the in the Christian world, right, we have the idea about saying that God is my co-pilot. It's really a pretty skewed look at it. So you have God, the creator of the universe. You're going to make him the co-pilot. You're going to be the captain, I guess, right? So we should really be saying God is my captain. I'm his co-pilot. And that's what, I was a captain, and so that's hard to. I'm some luggage down there. Yeah, right, down exactly. But that's area. it. I'd rather be luggage, right? What did Jesus say, right? Don't put yourself at the head of the table. Put yourself at the end and let 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 the, the, the party host bring you up, right? So um, it's good to be steerage. Yeah. And then when the Lord needs you to be something else, he'll let that happen. And uh, I mean, that's how this happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to add just as a little example from a totally different angle, the way like the way all of this works with the Lord is really clear if you have eyes to see. Like, um, I guess two little things. One's really brief. I broke my face playing um, men's rugby. Um, well, my Anthony and I had played in high school together. That's how we know each other. And we Came back home after college. We're going to play men's rugby, and like 15 minutes into the first half <laughs> of your first game, of my first game, yeah. you know, I'd showed up the Monday. Uh-huh. It's Saturday, and my own teammate it's just an accidental collision, and I break my uh-huh. face in three places, shatter my orbital. I mean, it's nothing compared to you, and that's not the no, point. No pain is pain, but it's like no concussion, no brain damage, yeah, no like didn't even get headaches. It's like hey, wake it's up. Just like I mean, I kind of looked at that as like oh, I got a strong neck and a thick skull, and like my. Skull took the impacts and my brain's okay, but I don't know if that makes sense or not. And like, maybe that's something like that's something I can look at and go, perhaps I need to use my brain in the future yeah. or something. And then more actually directly to your point, um, I met the woman who's now my fiance. We're getting married in just a few months. I, well, the day I met her, I was driving in my car to the event where I met her, literally shouting about relationships like god i'm done i'm (laughs) tired of trying nothing's worked it's just i'm angry i'm disappointed and i'm done like if you want me to meet somebody you do it i'm out peace and then literally like two hours later we hit it off yeah and you know um that that if you think about in the bible especially like the old testament right how often they talk about how the Israelites were crying out 
crying out, right? And, and I, I look at myself and say, how often in my life have I actually cried out in prayer? Like out of complete desperation. And I go back to being a 15 or 16-year-old kid kneeling over a dead girl, crying, screaming, help me, right? And it was fast and instant. And, and you know, for me, this is a, this ministry that I have is, I look at it like um, the story of Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man, right? And there's something about this story for me that it, it just resonates in that I got to be both characters. I'm the rich man. I was going through life thinking, right? I was living well by the world standards, right? I, and, and then I find myself in a situation where I'm where the rich man is, right? In this misery. And he asked Lazarus to send message, send Lazarus back to give his brothers a message, right? And he's with Abraham. And Abraham can't do it, which makes sense because Abraham's just another worker bee, right? He's not the father, right? He's not God. But I got to be the rich man doing the wrong things, and I got to go back and tell my brothers. And that's... That's where the burning desire is because that red room that I went to, see, where, we're, where we are right now, me talking to you guys seems so unreal. But that red room was real. Like it was way more real than anything in life. And I pray I don't have to go back there. But if I do... I want to be the only person ever in the history of the world to ever go there. And if I can do anything to keep someone from going to a place where they lose God, then I will do it. And how could I not know what I know, be told what I know? What kind of a sin would it be for me not to share that with someone else? And so that's where the, the desire is. And, and I'll be honest with you, that's usually what causes the the push for me to start pushing harder because it's like a clock, right? I mean, there are people that are close to death that have not heard this story, that haven't been able to think about it, pray about it, maybe change their ways, maybe get to a confession, maybe get back to mass. And if I don't tell them, then 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 what? Then they then it's too late, and uh, and then I I have to kind of pull myself back because then I end up pushing too hard and it doesn't work and it it's always works better and so there gets to be a point where things I'm pushing hard pushing hard it's not working and in and out of desperation and it's usually at my bedtime prayers I just I like just cry out to the Lord and say Lord I just want to speak for you I just want to tell them you know and I'm like if if you want me to stop I'll stop and then that's usually when he sets something up your your email was a there's a good story, and I, I guess we could talk about it if you want, and uh, you can decide whether you air it. Sure, yeah. I mean, from our side um, here at the Mary Foundation, people often send us books or materials that, that impacted them. Sometimes it's things they wrote themselves. And just unfortunately for many myriad of reasons, you know, we just can't do everything with everything. Um, we wish we could. And so occasionally, like, it's like, we'll get sent a book. It's like, we'll peruse it or somebody will skim through it. Um, 
be like, oh, that was cool. This is great. We hope this person does really well or something. And I, and then your book came across my desk. You had mailed it to us. Um, and I was like looking at it. And I was like, hmm, maybe, you know. And I was on my lunch break and I just kind of cracked it. And then I kept reading. And then I finished it. And I was like, wow, this is a really important story. And we've been trying to get back to our podcast because if you're a regular listener, you know that we don't regularly publish. Um, we're hoping to change that, but, and, I, and I'm like, why don't I just reach out? I said, why not? You know, what's the harm? It's an afternoon to record it. I'll just send them an email. So I shot you an email and I, you had mentioned a little bit that it kind of hit you at a specific time, but I don't really know any detail. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a, a Catholic city user. I'm a Mary foundation. Like, uh, you know, I've got your, your CD rosaries. I've gotten brown scapulars. I've, I have a different little booklets that you've had. I, I, I use you guys. And because of that, I get Bud's emails. And I knew he was doing the, the true cross, the, the carrying the true cross. Yeah. And I thought, wow, you know, when he, when he talked about fellow Cyrenians and I thought, my gosh, I, I talk about that in my book. I talk about it in, I'm like, maybe Bud needs to read this. He's on the road. And I sent him a PDF months ago, months, mm -hmm. like right at the beginning of his walk. Okay. And I didn't hear anything from him. And I honestly, I didn't expect to, right? But I thought, well, maybe if he gets it, he's on the road, it's on his phone, it's a PDF, he can read it. So Friday, whatever Friday it was, I get an email from Bud McFarland, not like I get like a private email from him and it says, Hey, you know, it sounds like a really great story, but you know, I work a lot of hours. And if, if I read everything that everybody sent me, I'd work three times as many hours as I'm working now. And I promise you, I'll look at it at some point in the next six months, but I can't read it right now. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, your email came on Monday, the following Monday, two days later. And I'm like, okay, that's not a coincidence. You know, it's just, it's just the way it works, you know? And, and, uh, and I thought that that's, that's awesome. I mean, it's just, for me, it was, I never send it out expecting anything. I just send it out and, and seeing, and, and when I got the first email, I thought, okay, that's always an acceptable answer. I mean, it, and then when you sent yours, I thought, well, that's pretty funny. You know, God, God has a really good sense of humor sometimes. At least it, it, it entertains me, you know. And, and so I look at that and say, well, geez, that makes it even more special. Because, uh, it, you know, maybe, it, maybe, that's, maybe it coming to you is where it needed to come. And, and, you know, that's part of thy will be done, right, is... Uh, we like to say thy will be done, but what we really mean is my will be done, right? And and so it, it it's a good um, – things like that are a good refresher. Like when people say no, that's okay it, because that's all part of God's will. And I, I can't remember which saint said it, but she said, you know, all, all the evil in the world cannot change the plans of God. And we need to remember that. Like, whatever God's plan is, we need to... He loves us more than we love ourselves. So we just need to be comfortable that, you know, he loves us. And and it might not be exactly what we thought, but um, you just kind of roll with it. And, and uh, but yeah, it's, it was fabulous to come out and, and speak with you guys. I, I, I love the opportunity. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, we're kind of running up on two hours, so I guess I'll just sort of closing thoughts from anybody. Yeah, I think uh, before we close out, just period, maybe you could read the reading for today for us. Okay. It's brief enough. Yeah. I'll need to get reading glasses out because sure. someday... I was going to offer you my glasses. Well, that probably well. wouldn't work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was... Uh, my lenses were damaged. My my eyeball lenses were, were damaged until... Uh, I have I had to have cataract surgery and I was still like in my forties, so that's oh, like wow. but that's right. how they fixed the lenses was to so I went from not re- needing reading glasses to instantly needing reading glasses. Well praise guys you, you don't need glasses like we do. So and then the nice thing about it is if I go to my website I can <laughs> and your your listeners can go to my res- website. I put out a daily inspiration uh and then in it has the daily readings. So I'm going to click Perfect. on it that way. All right. So you want to do the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. The disciples approached Jesus and said, Why do you speak to the crowd in parables? He said to them in reply, Because knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been granted to you, but to them it has not been granted. To anyone who has, more will be given, and he will grow rich. From anyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because they look, but they do not see, and hear, but do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You shall indeed hear, but not understand. You shall indeed look, but never see. Gross is the heart of this people. They will hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be converted and I heal them but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear amen I say to you many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see and to hear what you hear but did not hear and again it speaks to me because you know and I I've seen, um, and that's, you know, even for me, it's become an issue with confession that I, I feel that um, I I can really only do a good confession with a priest that knows my background. See, because my sins weigh heavier than, than others, because I've seen the results of them, and so, what is a minor sin? The priest has to understand where I'm coming from when I give it so that they can give me a proper penance. And and so I've seen. And how do you not speak if you've seen? So. I think it's a lesson for all of us. Yeah. And I also wanted to make the comment that Xavier's email turned into not only this, and we could only imagine who this might touch. Yeah, gosh. It's and a- tonight you've graciously agreed to talk to our young adult group. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, too. Yeah, oh, it's going to be great. We, yeah. we invited the rest of the parish, but it's Perfect. definitely going to be our people. Good. And, um, you know, a lot of young folks, a lot Good. of young minds to to impress this amazing story that you have. Wow, that's awesome. And might I add that you definitely refined it, and you know you know the, the points, you yeah. know, in good good order, good succession, you present it well. Yeah, thanks. So, well, yeah. Um, 
it will be different tonight because every time I've told it, it's been different. And I have several recordings, um, and it's funny, I have some uh, folks in my prayer group that will come to my, I can't believe they're not coming tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't tell them about it, but they, they will come and listen to me talk no matter where I give a talk. Yeah. And when I, uh, afterwards they say, okay, I've listened to that talk like six times, and you, t- you said something you've never said before. You told a part of the story you've never said. And I, I always start with notes. And I end up, I'm not very good at following them because uh, the, the big thing is, is at some point I describe my injuries and I can't remember all my injuries. So I need to have the notes to, mm-hmm. to have that down. But uh, it's truly from your heart then. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So, Ed, I just want to, you know, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to drive out here and spend the time talking with us. Uh, where can people find your stuff, get your book, hear so, your story, or contact you if they want to have you speak? Yeah. So I have a website. Uh, it's www dot presence of god encounters and that's p-r-e-s-e-n-c-e of god encounters e-n-c-o-u-n-t-e-r-s dot com so just like it sounds one word um, and on there there's a there's a way to sign up for my daily inspiration which again is just uh, the, usually the gospel and maybe a quote from a saint and the readings and uh, maybe just a short one or two sentence uh, blurb by me um, there's videos of talks there's links to other catholic websites there's all kinds of stuff on there you can sign up for like flock, flock note notifications and uh, that's the best way the book is available on amazon but one of the things that i always do is when i do a talk if you invite me to come talk to your parish or your prayer group or and i'll talk to anybody i'll talk to one person or i'll talk to a thousand it's a, a lot more bang for the effort if I can talk to a thousand at a time, but I will talk to one person and tell this story. I always bring books and I give them away for free because it's not something that I feel, how could you charge, how could you charge for this? And is there an email people can send inquiries to? Yeah, you can do uh, ed, ed Joza at in the same presence of God encounters.com. And, uh, and, and that's also, there's a way to contact me through the website. Can, can you spell that? Yeah. It's uh, it's one of those. Oh yeah, those ones. Ed shows. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking. Uh, yeah. So Ed is E D, and then it's J O Z S A Zulu Sierra Alpha. So J O Z S A at Presence of God Encounters dot com. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. <laughs> Thank, Thank you guys. everybody for yeah. listening through Thanks, this. Uh, Goodbye. Thank you all too. Thanks, this might be our longest one yet. So <laughs> that's all, folks. We hope you were inspired by this podcast and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our free Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know, family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, Please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, all we ask for is help covering our materials costs. So please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted, so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.